Good morning. And welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Dick Lipinski, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since the year 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are in life's journey, you are welcomed here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online. So be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for any updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith and we, as we gather together. Sorry. Good morning. I'm Richard Olson, and I've been a member of this church for almost, I think, 30 years. Welcome to winter, if you didn't notice already. Our hats, mittens, gloves, scarves, and winter coats now crowd our closets once again. And as for the gloves and mittens, they still might be matching pairs, but we know that could easily change. So once again, we embrace the beauty and the stillness of the season. And while we may, at the same time, brace ourselves for those long nights, we also relish those cozy nights, sitting by the fire, wrapped up in a fuzzy throw, sitting next to someone or something warm. Here's a poem by one-time Canadian poet laureate Bliss Carman. The starry, night, the starry midnight whispers as I muse before the fire on the ashes of ambition and the embers of desire. Life has no other logic and time no other creed than I for joy will follow where thou for love dost lead. Please join me in singing our opening hymn, Enter, Rejoice, and Come In. There's not a lot of us here, so we're going to have to sing with a little extra gusto than usual. So please rise if you are able and willing.
Joey likes to th- say that that song reminds him of Popeye the Sailor Man. We have two readings this morning. And I'll start with the first. It involves a Japanese warrior named Nobunaga. He decided to attack the enemy, although he had only one tenth the number of men the opposition commanded. He knew that he would win, but his soldiers were in doubt. On the way, he stopped at a Shinto shrine and told his men. After I visit the shrine, I will toss a coin. If head comes, we will win. If tails, we lose. Destiny holds us in her hands. Nobunaga entered the shrine and offered a silent prayer. He came forth and tossed a coin. Heads appeared. His soldiers were so eager to fight that they won their battle easily. No one can change the hand of destiny, his attendant told him after the battle. Indeed not, said Nobunaga, showing a coin which had been doubled, with heads facing either way. Now our second reading is about a gentleman by the name of Ryokan, a Zen master. Lived the simplest kind of life in a little hut at the foot of a mountain. One evening, a thief visited the hut only to discover there was nothing to steal. Ryokan returned and caught him. You have come a long way to visit me, he told the prowler. And you should not return empty-handed. Please take my clothes as a gift. The thief was bewildered. He took the clothes and slunk away. Ryokan sat naked, watching the moon. Poor fellow, he must. I wish I could have given him the beautiful moon. Thank you. 
As we now enter in a moment of silence, let us, rather than praying for favors, let us instead consider our own intentions. Namaste. I never knew if it had an official name. Everyone just called it the Madhouse, which is as good a name as any for a flop house. It sat on Claremont Avenue in the western part of Eau Claire, and I drove by it nearly every day when I lived there. It was a structure with one apartment, but mostly individual bedrooms with common areas. It was mostly populated by transients who liked to party. At one time, three friends from my childhood and, and high school years shared that one apartment. It was a rough-looking place with lots of hogs, but not the kind of hogs that root and snort, the kind of hogs that rev and roar, the kind that herd in tomahawk and sturges, Harleys. I never really knew why they called them hogs until some time ago I found out that it stands for Harley Owners Group and that HOG are the letters used by the New York Stock Exchange to identify the Harley-Davidson Company. On any given summer night that was dry, and not just Friday and Saturday nights, several hogs would idle in the parking lot at the madhouse, maintaining a gentle purr, which those bikers kept an ear on, much in the same way a parent might do. If one started to spit up, choke, or sound erratic, they would drop what they were doing and nurse it back to health. Now, it's not so bad being around Harleys while they're idling away in a parking lot, but as you well know, sit next to one at a traffic light as they rev their engines, and it's a different story. I never hung around long at the madhouse or late, and that was probably due to both caution and wisdom. But those bikers, they were happiest first when riding, second when fixing, and third when talking about riding and fixing. You could make fun of them, even kiddingly insult them, and they would laugh along. But insult their Harley? That was worse than insulting their mother. For much of my high school teaching years, I worked with an English teacher who taught literature, writing classes, and whatever other courses English teachers teach. He was slim and trim, clean-cut, well-spoken, and mild-mannered. But on some weekends, he would join other Harley riders as they congregated for group rides. His biker chick, well, actually his wife, rode along too. She was also a sophisticated English teacher. I would sometimes tease them, saying I could just imagine the conversations with their fellow bikers, all the others talking about carburetors, intake valves, and mufflers or lack thereof, while they would be talking about Shakespeare's use of foreshadowing, the dark humor of Flannery O'Connor, and the correct use of fewer and less. In 1974, during my experimental college years, Robert M. Persig's book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, An Inquiry into Values, hit the shelves. How many read it? Yeah? Okay. 
While not gaining the fame of Vonnegut, Persig's book was being talked about, and some were even reading it. I remember reading, it, reading the book at some point soon after it was published, but that was a long time ago, so I decided to read it again last summer. I often do that, reread something I read years ago. They say no two people ever read the same book, to which I might add, no one person ever reads the same book twice. Where I was in my life those years ago is not the same place I am today. Back then, I knew more about motorcycles than I did about Zen. Now, it's the other way around. The basic storyline of the book is a physical journey by motorcycle from Minnesota to the Pacific Coast. Yet, since most of the action takes place in the narrator's mind, it's also a mental journey. On one bike are the narrator and his son, Chris. On the other bike, but only for part of the journey, are the Sutherlands, John and Sylvia. There is some dialogue in the book, but basically everything else the reader knows comes from the thoughts and perspectives of the father. And as the book is narrated in first person, the reader is easily drawn into the narrator's head, heart, and soul. He has made this trip before and is clearly the one in charge of most of the decisions. But this time, on this trip, he has a clear purpose in mind. Quote, we want to make good time with the emphasis on good rather than time. He laments that it has taken him so long to catch on to the quiet and slow pace of country roads he has chosen for this trip. He discovers that they are leading them to where there is, as he puts it, a hereness, a nowness of things. With the reader, now, considering what this means, Perseg then expands the narrator's thoughts to the prevailing cultural values of that time. Money, status, image, performance, possessions, speed, convenience, and so on. The kind of people who buy into those values are, as the narrator observes, are the kind of people who, quote, when the truth knocks at their door, they say, go away, I'm looking for the truth. We can still identify those same values in our culture today. All we have to do is see where the money, praise, and power go. Persig is both generous and descriptive with his allusions to nature as the story unfolds, and that was very timely. It was a decade when Joni Mitchell claimed that they had paved paradise and put up a parking lot, a decade when the EPA banned DDT, a decade following scenes of rivers that were so polluted they caught on fire. The book was also timely for other reasons. It appealed to the counterculture hangover from the 60s and the changing perceptions of what constitutes a happy and successful life. It also caught the attention of technophobes who feared technology would become sentient and take over our lives. You probably all remember Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey, opened the pod door Open the pod bay doors, hell. What do those surviving technophobes think now? Self-driving cars, cars that might start themselves up and drive off without us or take us where they want us to go? <clears throat> the fear of change, advances in technology, was nothing new during the 70s, nor is it today. But... When it comes to technology, I agree with the prescient thoughts of Persig's narrator. It's not the technology we should fear. It's the people using it.
So let's journey along with our narrator, his son Chris, and the Sutherlands and see what happens. But before we hit the road, just a bit about Zen. Just as there are many versions of many religious denominations of which Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all come to mind, there are also different versions of Buddhism as well. What began as Mahayana Buddhism during the Tang Dynasty in a land that we now call China, the movements morphed into sub-schools and spread through Asia, where it ended up in Japan as Zen. In its modern form, Zen is considered a way of living rather than an ideology. Here are some direct and paraphrased attributes of Zen from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. The Zen school of what is called the Buddha way aspires to the perfection of personhood. Those who practice Zen seek to embody non-discriminatory wisdom by way of meditational experiences known as satori, or enlightenment. The process of discovering wisdom culminates in the understanding that all things and all events are equal. It contends that wisdom, when accompanied by compassion, is expressed when we associate with ourselves, with other people, and with nature. It also calls for casting off common perceptives of things and events as either or, of good versus evil, of logic versus ego, of yin versus yang, claiming that these perspectives lead to stress and anxiety. Instead, it holds that we should celebrate life with a stillness of mind, concentrate on concrete things and events of everyday life and nature by concentrating on the here and now. Unique to Japanese Zen Buddhism are statements, questions, or short narratives to expand the intellect, test one's ego, and arrive at an intuitive level. They are called cones, K-O-A-N-S. And you heard two of them this morning, one involving a coin, the other involving the moon. So why did Perseg choose a motorcycle for his inquiry into values? I mean, I can understand a nice comfortable car with advanced reservations at nice hotels, or a practical camper maybe, a vintage Volkswagen minivan, or a shiny Airstream trailer. But a motorcycle? You get wet, you get a sore back, and they're dangerous. Persig has his narrator answer that question. Quote, you see things vacationing on a motorcycle in a way that is completely different from any other. In a car, you're always in a compartment and because you're used to it, you don't realize that through that car window, everything you see is just more TV. You are a passive observer, and it is all moving by you, boringly, in a frame. On a cycle, the frame is gone. You're completely in contact with it all. You're in the scene and the sense of presence is overwhelming." Unquote. Throughout the book, the narrator drags the reader through page after page of several esoteric topics. And his detailed thoughts on everything to do with motorcycles reminded me of Melville's Moby Dick and the detailed descriptions of the whale and the whaling business. I have to admit that in, both, in the case of both books, I found myself scrolling ahead until the subject changed. Yet that very process gave me pause to consider. How often do we get bogged down with minutiae in our lives? 
You know, sweating the small stuff, nitpicking, and engaging in petty bickering, and boring others who would like to fast forward. Of course, focusing on minutiae is a good way to avoid the more pressing issues for which we have no desire to either think about or try to solve. At one point, thinking about why he chose remote roads, some unmapped, poorly marked, or unmarked, our narrator thinks, quoting again, we navigate mostly by dead reckoning and deduction from what clues we find. Here is Persig philosophizing about life. We navigate mostly by dead reckoning and deduction from the clues we find. The narrator likens his journey to a Chautauqua, a word some of us know, which he describes as traveling tent shows that used to move across America, an old-time series of popular talks intended to edify, entertain, improve the mind, and bring culture and enlightenment. Entertain? We have plenty of that these days. But edify, improve the mind, bring culture and enlightenment, not so much. But on this Chautauqua, he does not hope to, quote, cut new channels of consciousness, but simply dig deeper into the old ones that have become silted in with the debris of thoughts grown stale and platitudes too often repeated." End quote. Persig's challenge to the reader is clear. Dig deeper into old channels that have become silted in with the debris of thoughts grown stale and platitudes too often repeated. As for life journey, Persig has his narrator suggest to the reader that instead of always asking each other, what's new, we should be asking each other, what's best? Throughout the book, there is conflict, both interpersonal and intrapersonal, and mostly the latter. But the mostly underlying internal, interpersonal conflict is between the narrator and John Sutherland. It is a conflict that transcends the book and one that was indicative of the culture of the time. It still is, for that matter. John Sutherland is a leftover from the 60s. He's a musician and makes a good living at it. Our narrator writes and edits technical journals. One has an artistic approach to life, the other a scientific approach. According to the narrator, John Sutherland is, isn't interesting, interested in what things mean, but instead what things are. John is not interested in how his bike works, only that it's supposed to work, and that's that. He is interested in how the bike looks and how he looks when riding. He wants everything to be groovy. He wants image while the narrator wants essence. John sees steel in various shapes, whereas the narrator sees ideas. John thinks the narrator is working on parts, but the narrator is working on concepts. When the handlebars on his bike start to slip, John is nonchalant about it and is just willing to ignore it. This, of course, vexes our narrator. When the narrator suggests that he use a, a shim to solve the problem, John says, what's a shim? Then, when the narrator fashions a shim out of a beer can, he is offended that John doesn't even appreciate his resourcefulness. But he understands that he and John live in two different dimensions. 
Other characters along the route come into play mostly in minor ways. But at one point, another major character is introduced, Phaedrus. Takes the reader a while to figure out that Phaedrus is the narrator himself, or rather his previous self, a faculty member at a university in Bozeman, Montana, who had lost control of reality, was diagnosed with schizophrenia, institutionalized, and treated with electric shock therapy. The narrator refers to Phaedrus in third person, even though he's talking about himself. He thinks like, well, this is what Phaedrus would say. This is what Phaedrus would do. This is how Phaedrus would act. It is as if the narrator is trying to individuate himself from his previous self, as in, that was the old me, this is the new me. But is it? Can anyone ever become a new me? We can evolve. We can strive to become a better me. And even though we can't erase the things from our past, we can write over them. Which is what our narrator is doing as he ultimately informs the reader of his larger purpose of this Chautauqua to reconcile his past with his present. Reconciling our past with our present. I suspect this is something we all do in different ways and in different degrees of success. And it could very well take a lifetime to do so. But reconciling our past with our present does not mean reinventing ourselves because it never ends there. William Shakespeare wrote that past is prologue, and who can deny that? Centuries later, William Faulkner wrote, the past is never dead, it isn't even past. And that could be true, too, if that's the way you want it. Yes, the past is prologue to our present. And it is a pattern that repeats itself over and over and over, and we call it life. But dwell too much in one prologue, and you might just stall into a redundant life. We may not always get over our prologues, but we do need to get through them. Either I didn't know it at the time, or I had forgotten that Persig's book is autobiographical fiction. This particular journey is fiction, but the rest of it was based on his life. In his later years, Persig helped found the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, then lived as a recluse and worked on his book, Lila, for 17 years before its publication in 1993. Lila, much like his best-known work, centers on a journey, this time on a boat in the Hudson River. I haven't read the book, but apparently during the trip he meets an anxious woman on the verge of a mental breakdown. This evokes his memory of Phaedrus once again, and he continues the process of reconciling his past with his present. Lila was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1992. In 1979, Persig's son, Chris, was fatally stabbed near the San Francisco Zen Center. Persig died at 88 in 2017. Now, I would imagine that most of us have little desire, the will, or the stamina to take a motorcycle journey such as the one in this book. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen a motorcycle in our parking lot. But we can find other ways to be in the scene, to find a sense of presence, and to make good time. But this is difficult because we first need to unplug. Then we can sit in a sunlight room and watch the shadows 
move across the room, or a moonlight room, for that matter. Instead of having a cup of microwave tea, we can have a cup of tea, the old-fashioned way, a whistling teapot, and then make sipping it the only thing you do for a good long while. We can sit on our porch and watch a spider weave its web and notice how the sun glistens in its creation. We can exit that metaphorical freeway, highway of life and slowly navigate the back roads, at least once in a while. Persig's book is more than just a guidebook about a trip from Minnesota to the West Coast. It's a guidebook for life, of life, past and present. And to quote the narrator one last time, the real cycle you're working on is a cycle called yourself. Every reader will find bits of themselves and others in this inquiry into values. And it's still timely, ever so timely. So, if you haven't read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, give it a go. And if you have, read it again for the first time. You can skim and scan your way across the pages that bog you down and as such make good time. But remember to put the emphasis on good rather than time. Please join me now as we sing Shabbat Shalom. It's a song, it's number 214 in your hymnal. It's a song we haven't done a lot here, but um, we're going we're to sing through it twice. So if you don't catch on the first time, you'll be able to follow along on the second time. Uh, so please rise as you are willing and able. Number 214, Shabbat Shalom. be seated. More than once on public walls in Latin America, I have seen this message spray-painted. En cada joven hay un che. In every young person there is a che, a che Guevara, a revolutionary spirit. In 1951, che and un amigo took a motorcycle trip through much of South America. After witnessing the deplorable conditions of life for many people caused by economic disparity, abuse of money, power, land, and religion, Che became an ardent Marxist 
And you may remember he participated in the Cuban Revolution and other areas in, in Latin America and Africa. He went on to write a memoir of that motorcycle trip titled The Motorcycle Diaries, Notes on a Latin American Journey. I quote from him now. The first commandment for every good explorer is that an expedition has two points, the point of departure and the point of arrival. If your intention is to make the second theoretical point coincide with the actual point of arrival, don't think about the means. Because the journey is a virtual space that finishes when it finishes, and there are many means as there are different ways of finishing. That is to say, the means are endless. So as you um, enjoy this postlude, I, I just have to reassure Ray of one thing, and that I didn't get him a motorcycle for Christmas. So, so please enjoy this song. One announcement to make. One quick announcement, very important announcement. Uh, the 2021 annual congregational meeting will take place in the sanctuary after today's service. And all UU members are encouraged to attend to vote on the 2022 budget, nomination, and minutes from last year's meeting. Uh, the critical element in this meeting is that a quorum is needed of 40, 40 people. And uh, the weather has cut down our attendance to some degree, but hopefully those that are here can, uh, I can count. I think we have over 40 here, if I, my counting is correct, but if you can stay, we'd appreciate it. Other than that, thank you.